Hey folks, it's Yannick Wisdala. It's the Yannick Wisdala podcast, special interview episode today with one of my heroes. It never gets old interviewing your heroes. And this one happens to also be a great friend and the band leader of Vital Information, a band which I am now a member of, a band which is celebrating 40 years of existence. We were in the studio about six or seven months ago in New York recording a new double album, which is out now. Everything is linked below, including the tour dates to our upcoming East Coast portion of the 40th anniversary tour. We start out June 17th out in Long Island, and we finish up the run with three nights at Birdland in Manhattan in New York City, June 30th, July 1st, July 2nd. Again, all tour dates are linked below. This interview was taped back in April as we closed out our West Coast tour in Phoenix, Arizona at the Musical Instrument Museum. I wish it was five times longer. I have 5,000 more questions that I wanted to ask Steve. Unfortunately, our schedule was really, really tight, and this was all the time we had to sit down and chat. The interview was super fun for me, as Steve has been a hero for many years. He was in Steps Ahead, the 1986 concert in Tokyo that was a huge part of the motivation for me moving to the US and to become a professional musician, period. So I'll stop my yakking. We'll get into it. I hope it's the first of many times we get to sit down and talk about music. This is my interview with the great Steve Smith. Last night of the tour, last night of the West Coast tour. Amazing. 10 shows. How do you feel, first of all? I've wanted to ask you this the whole tour and I've waited until we sat down. Okay. How do you feel physically after hitting 10 days in a row pretty much 10 days yeah it's it's a challenge for me at at this age to um it's not it's not the playing it's it's the setting it up it's the breakdown right it's not quite enough sleep at night um yeah that's that's the the challenge that i'm faced with now at at 68 years old right and then we have these long drives, and uh, what makes it worth it, of course, is that ninety minutes or seventy-five minutes on stage, right. and then you know we have a fantastic time. And and then after the gig, it's nice. Like yeah. then you, you get the glow, <laughs> the afterglow, and and and. Uh, but yeah, the setup. The tear down, you know that that's a challenge. I mean, you're not traveling with the with the smallest amount of gear, or the no, largest I, amount of road crew, right? <laughs> it's like what a combination! <laughs> yeah, it's working out. We have uh, Nick on tour with us, yeah. who does the driving, he does the sound, and he helps with the right. with the with the setup and breakdown. But I also try to call in a favor or two, like if I have a friend in the area, come sure. on in, hang out, we'll work on the drums, and, and that works out too. Now, something I didn't know was that you play with Ahmed Jamal. That's news to me. I thought I knew a lot about your career, yeah. and then you pulled out these Ahmed Jamal charts that they sent you. Right. Beautiful right. handwritten charts. Gorgeous charts. What year was that? That would have been uh, 87, I think. It was right around the, the time of Steps Ahead, when I was first playing oh, okay. with Steps Ahead, and the connection is Milan Simic. Okay, so Milan Simic, um, not at that time. I don't. I don't think in those years he was managing Steps, but he went on to be Steps Ahead manager. And Milan Simic is a New York uh, impresario <laughs> who is a producer, and he organizes gigs, and he calls me for many of those gigs. And somehow he saw me play with Steps Ahead at the Bottom Line in '86. Okay. And and liked my playing and recommended me to Ahmad, which led to a call when they needed a drummer. 
Okay. So that's kind of an amazing, like opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of yeah. like, you know, the 1986 concert for those people who don't know anyone who follows the podcast, you're going to know this. That's one of the two things that made me move to America was right. seeing the steps ahead live in Tokyo, 1986 and seeing Brecker Brothers, uh, Return of the Brecker Brothers tour. Those were the two things I've right. since gone on to play with everyone from all of those albums, yeah. which is amazing. <laughs> but uh, as I think about how I experienced that, I wasn't listening to Armin Jamal at the same time. Right. Yet you were like doing this Actually, I, I wasn't either. You know, you, but okay. I learned about Ahmad's music by playing with him and right before playing with him. But, you know, I've since uh, listened and studied his music. But, but it's way more kind of intimate, I would... It was... A, it was yeah. Well, it was a, a trio and, and, and to, at times a percussionist. Okay. And so it was Jimmy Kamak on bass and Ahmad and myself and then, and then like a kunga player at times. Yeah. And it was... Uh, volume level was low, right. very low, and uh, the the first first week was a week at Catalina, the old Catalina, and that's how I met the folks at Catalina. They got gotcha. my foot in the door, then to go back with vital information. Wow! So all the back then, all the way back then in eighty seven, yeah, was sort of laying the groundwork. That's right for touring as a band leader. Yeah, I mean, you know, like as as I toured with various bands, I got to know the clubs and got to right. know the bookers or the owners. And then one thing leads to another. And then I would, you know, it's like, I got a band, you right. know, can we play here basically, <laughs> you know, and then eventually, you know, you started to do the touring yeah. with my own group. So like the, 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 what were you coming off? I've always wanted to ask you this. What were you coming off just before the steps ahead thing? Was that the end of journey right yeah. before that? Yes. I'm just trying to get the yeah, transition so, of so like my my you know like my first time of getting fired from Journey was <laughs> 1985. Okay, Ross, Valerie, and I, <laughs> and and that's you know it's a long story that's been told time and yeah, time no, no. again. I'm and just it, I'm just interested yeah. in the timeline, so, like musically where yeah, you're coming so, from. So and so you know so that was uh, that was in July 1985, and. um so I spent some time at home, and and at that time that was really hard for me emotionally. It was quite painful, okay, because I was so very invested in the band. You know, right. like I was a full time band member. Sure. That's all I did for like seven years. Right. Like, not all I did, but it was like a not kind of a nine to five, all encompassing with job. vital information kind of sprinkled. Yeah, in and then it. when I had time off, I do vital information. I also was was doing the Tom Coster group. Okay, and that was that was with Randy Jackson on bass and. Uh, um, Joaquin Lieveno on guitar okay. and Tom Coster and we played not a lot of gigs but we had some fun and uh, in fact I introduced Randy to the guys and I was going to say is that how he got the gig yeah, yeah yeah because he and I were playing with Tom but we also were a rhythm section that was getting gigs at Fantasy Records as session uh, guys okay. you know we'd just go in and play on various albums um and one one of the things that happened after being out of Journey is there were many requests for me to do drum clinics oh. from Sonar and Zildjian, and I hadn't uh, really been able to do many clinics because my schedule was so busy. Right. And and so then in '86 uh, I went out on did a lot of clinics for Sonar and Zildjian and Remo and and the other companies, but mainly spearheaded by Sonar and or Zildjian. And 
And then there was one clinic I did in the Philadelphia area with Peter Erskine and okay. with Lenny White, Kenwood <laughs> Denard, Jerry Brown. It was, you know, it was a, it was a great um, gathering of the different drummers. And, and that's when backstage I was hanging out with Peter and Lenny. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Peter, who I've known, I had known since 1974, right. 3, yeah, Stan Kenton Camp. Right. Even before that, I'd see him on the road as the drummer with Stan Kenton. Right. And he totally blew me away because he was this kid my age, right. killing it. You guys the- were only a few months apart, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So he he told me that he had just left Steps Ahead. And I was like, oh, really? Because <laughs> he was going to play with Joe Zawin, a right. syndicate. And Lenny said, oh, yeah, I know. They called me to do it. But I couldn't. I can't make it. And. It's like, I need a gig. <laughs> and, and Lenny said, you know, I'll, I'll call Mike Maneri and Mike Brecker. I said, that'd be great. Boom. And how many times do you hear that? And then nothing ever happens. Every but, time. Yeah. Right, right? <laughs> but literally the next day I was doing a clinic at a music store in Washington, D.C. And somehow they found me and the, the store manager came up and he goes, oh, I got Mike Brecker on the phone. For you. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, so I went and talked to Michael Brecker, and then a little while later, Mike Maneri called, and they said, when your clinic tour is over, come to New York, and we want to start rehearsing. Damn. And that was it. Because it's cr- like the few stories you've told in the van, and it's just been around you for many years now, there's been this sort of recurring theme that things have happened quite quickly. Quickly, yeah. There's been this like very few links in the chain before the, the, the initial idea to the actual thing happening. That's true. Like, that, that, yeah. I've been very lucky. Yeah. Yeah, well, very fortuitous with, you know, all these... But also being around Pete that long as well has always kind of fascinated me. As you well know, I just interviewed Peter. He, of course, talked about you a little bit, yeah, but yeah. you guys are kind of close. And yes. you've talked about like learning some of his parts, for instance, from Magnetic before the Steps yeah. Ahead tour. Yeah, I really studied the parts that he played. And it was, it was that album, Mag- yeah. Magnetic. Which they did in 85, I think, right? Shortly uh, before the right. tour, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, I transcribed them. I think I have it with me. I have like I no have the have- well. No, his it wasn't on that record, but pools. Okay, then we played pools, so yeah. I had to learn pools. Which you know, some of those parts are so specific and unique and interesting. Yeah. And so you don't just like play them like a jazz tune. They're right. they're they're orchestrated as one would do a rock tune, really, right. in, a, in a way. You know, like very, you know, very much like the. The bass line and the drum part and the chords and all of it, it's like a pieces of a puzzle that fit together. Which is interesting because I, when I hear you play with, with Journey, for instance, it's, it is very orchestrated what you do. Yeah. Like the parts, you didn't just go in there and go bashing away. Umcha, umcha, umcha. Right. It is very orchestrated. And was that something that attracted you to like the steps ahead kind of thing? Were you, I don't, is that something I don't you identified think, with or? I don't, I don't think so. I just steps ahead. Well, I, ever since they came out, it attracted me because they're great virtuosos, great musicians, sure. love the music. So ever since I heard Smoking in the Pit, you know, I think that was the early record yeah. and the ones with Steve Gadd and then the early records with Peter. I just was a huge fan, you know, and I, I loved all those musicians individually and then collectively you know, the sound they made together. So you've done just about every gig there is, uh, give or take a couple. Is there anyone you are, you have been a huge fan of that you always thought, oh man, I would have loved to have, 
done this or done that. Yeah, I would love to play with Herbie Hancock. Okay. You know, and I, I played with him it's for like one song on a TV show where actually it's like a midnight special or something where he sat in with Journey okay. on a synth. <laughs> you know, oh, wow. I know. It's like in those days, like, and I don't remember whether it was Don Kirshner's rock concert or, right. you know, it was one of those shows, but we were doing gigs. I think Alphonse Muzon was playing with Herbie. Okay. And we were hanging out and just, he just came over and played some synth with us. So, but that, that, yeah. That would be one. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fun. I mean, for me playing in Vital Information, obviously I listened to your band as a teenager you know we're playing perfect date that was always one of my favorite tunes right now manuel has kind of wound up the crazy meter on that yeah, yeah. <laughs> like in yeah, Poco the Loco. 2023 version of Ex- exactly um but we're playing a lot of jazz as well yeah like has that always been the underlying thing was that the initial sort of embryo to start it all off or, yeah. were you, or was it like the beatles or something you know what i mean like Oh, to start my interest in music? Yeah, just when you were really young. Has that always yeah. been an underlying thing? Because you've done all this rock stuff and fusion stuff and stuff that really right. isn't so related to, right. you know, Max Roach or, you know, playing with brushes even. like. Yeah, I think when, it, when I go back to my music orientation, it takes me back to you know, starting out drumming at nine years old with a teacher. So okay. I really, I wanted to play the drums and then my parents brought me to a, a private teacher, which was a great way to start. Yeah, and and so re- actually, from the first note of picking up a stick, and then being opening a a book that's like this is a quarter note, and this is a, a quarter rest, and this R means a right hand, and this L <laughs> means a left hand, and traditional. It was like pretty traditional in that way. Uh, but my teacher, Billy Flanagan, and in the, and he lived in Brockton, Mass., which is just south of Boston, mm-hmm. and actually really close to where the Zildjian factory is. He, he kind of fostered that love of jazz in me, you know, and he was into Buddy Rich and Louis Belson and Joe Morello. And, and, and my parents did have some jazz records like, uh, Benny Goodman records with Gene Krupa. Okay. So I liked, I liked jazz, you know, and I liked big band. That was the main kind of music that I liked. Right. And then, luckily, I got to see a lot of those big bands. Did you know Buddy Rich, or did you hang with him at all? Or? I met him once. Okay. Intimidating <laughs> there's a, fellow. There's a or? picture. Of, oh, yeah. It's kind of funny, but... Uh, oh, totally intimidating. And I, I saw him for the first time in 1968 when he was playing at the Boston Globe Jazz Festival. Okay. My parents brought me there to, to see him and... Uh, of course, it was mind blowing. And then every time he was in the Boston area, once I got my driver's license, I would go to see him play. Okay, so you got to see him a bunch. I got to see yeah. him a bunch, and and I think there's there's something to be said for being in the room with fantastic musicians yeah. that uh, pales in comparison to listening to people. Uh, that have been recorded, listening to recordings yeah. or watching videos, you know, un, you know, and of course there's many musicians I never got to see because they had passed on by the time I got to the age where I wanted to hear them. Um, but, but, you know, having that chance to be in the room with Buddy Rich and then later on Tony Williams or Elvin Jones or Max Roach, and that, that changed like that my DNA, it feels like, you know, that yeah. because, 
And I was—I just did a drum clinic here. We're at MIM, yeah, uh, musical instrument museum in in Phoenix, and yeah. I just had done a, a drum clinic. And I I talked about the value of uh, the students hearing. Uh, well, I I said, how many of you have you have ever heard me play live? Mm-hmm. And and a few raised their hand, but most didn't. So I says, well, if you, today you're going to hear me play for the first time ever. Right. Really, you're right. going to hear me because what you've heard before is a recorded sound, sure. a drum sound yep. that has come through microphones or somebody's iPhone yeah. or, or whatever. And so you really don't know what what the drums sound like when I play them and you're 10 feet away yeah. or what my cymbals sound like, what my touch is like, what my inner balance is like, and then how I blend with you, how I blend with Manuel. Like, yeah. you know, so, and a lot of people don't think about that, but seeing people play, you're not hearing a drum sound. You're hearing the sound of the drums coming off the stage. You're hearing the piano, you're hearing the bass as yeah. you play it. And, that's so valuable. And that, those kind of experiences really did influence me and change me that I got to see and hear and witness and be in the room with those musicians. Because also the, the other thing is I knew what kind of effect their playing had on me. So that instructed me into what I wanted to emanate, what I want to put out right. to, to move the listeners that are in that audience. So it helped give you perspective and nuance and a framework yeah. to... How else are you going to know? Like you, yeah. can, you can listen all day to a record, <laughs> but it doesn't, and doesn't give you that sense of what it's like to be in front of that musician and how it affects you. So now when I go, you know, would go on stage, I had a lot to go on. Is like, what, what do I need to do to move this audience? What would you say, like, besides, we, we can talk dramas, but add, add mu- other musicians in there as well, besides, like, Buddy Rich and Tony Williams, who are obviously huge, and yeah. Elvin. Yeah. Do you remember certain things which were, like, light bulb moments, certain concerts, or was it just yeah. the sheer volume of stuff that you were experiencing live? Yeah, there, there were, you know, luckily, and if, if I go back to those years of, uh, like I went, I started going to Berkeley in 1972. Okay. And so, and, and that's, you know, after I graduated high school in June 72, and then went to Berkeley in September of 72. And, and right around that time, in a way, what's, what's, what I found greatly interesting about that time is, I was listening to a lot of jazz that had happened not that long before, like Miles Davis with Tony Williams. Right. So that wasn't even 10 years old. No. Like, you know, that was... In 73, they stopped in 68 or something, 69. Yeah. yeah, it was only a few years, yeah. So it still seemed a little old to me, you know, okay. in, in, from perspective oh, of being a kid. Yeah, wow. I know. Because I didn't, I didn't see that group, you know, with, with Tony Williams. And, and we were listening, you know, me and a lot of the other students to like uh, a Love Supreme, yeah. Giant Steps and stuff like that, which really wasn't that long before that. But what was happening in real time was I could go to like uh, Boston Symphony Hall and see Weather Report. <laughs> and I remember Don Romeo coming out and he had two gongs. Yeah. And and they had the bottoms were flat, and it's because he came out and he was he pounded it on the floor and 
<laughs> and walk across the stage. And, you know, so, so that, that was happening. Uh, and I saw Miles Davis with Al Foster and okay. Michael Henderson at Paul's Mall. Yeah. The Brecker Brothers at the Jazz Workshop. Billy Cobham's group with Mike and Randy Brecker. Dreams? No, was it, was, it was it was crosswinds. Okay, Billy's album called Crosswinds. Gotcha. With a trombone player in the horn section as well. Gl- I Glenn say. Ferris. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And John Abercrombie on guitar. Yes, Abercrombie exactly. And Milchel Lebyev on on piano. And I forget. The and name there of was the bass Alex player. Blake. Alex Blake. Yes. In, in playing like a lot of uh, electric. Yeah. And I was sitting in the front row with Vinnie Colaiuta, <laughs> and we were screaming like you know. <laughs> Girls that had seen were watching the Beatles. <laughs> wow! And then you know, maybe a year later, Tony Williams' life, new lifetime with Alan Holdsworth, yeah, Alan Pasqua, oh, and Tony wow. Newton. You know, so those were like in these experiences were kind of mind blowing. Were you aware, like you and Vinny, for instance, are you similar age? In age? He's two years younger than me. Okay, yeah. Were you guys aware? Um, when you made the crossover from being like screaming fangirls in the front row to like sort of beginning to dominate that scene in that world? I don't know. That's a good question, but I don't know that there's a black and white answer uh-huh. to it. You know, sometimes when I, when I talk to them, like we catch up every so often, it's still like we're these kids. Yeah. You know, we had such a strong connection of like we shed together. Because 72, 73 would have been a few years before he did Zappa. Yeah, well, he he didn't show up until maybe 74. Oh, 74, okay. 74, 75. So were you there with Stern as well? Did you meet yeah. Stern in Boston? Yeah, that's why Stern's on the first Vital Information record. Ah, okay. Yeah, we used to play. We used to session together. Yep. As, yep. Let's, let's get together in session, which yep. doesn't mean a recording session. No, just playing. A jam session. Yep. Just to get, to get together and play. And so, you know, we did a lot of that. Was Liebman there as well around no. that time? No. No, he was ahead of us. He was ahead. Okay. Yeah. Jack, so. Did you meet Jacko around that time when he came up from Miami? Or? I did not. Okay. No. no. I didn't meet wow. Jacko until Vital Information opened for him uh, at Al Rose's Italian Villa in, <laughs> yeah. in some town in Ohio that I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> but Vital Information opened for Jocko. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So those, I, I don't, you know, those experiences were, you know, life-changing, uh, being in the room with those musicians. And, uh, and then just slowly, in, in a way, it seemed like I started to work my way into, I was playing a lot of gigs in Boston and getting, you know, some good calls. But, you know, the real, the big transition was when I auditioned for Jean-Luc Ponty and got that gig. Right. Then left Berkeley. And, yeah. And that was October 1976. Okay. And that was a little before, like you were saying, uh, Vinny got with Frank Zappa. Yeah. Just not not much, but he, I think that he got that gig just shortly after that. And what was the feeling in the jazz world towards you? Like, as this guy was obviously like, Got, got all your shit together and you're off with Luke Pont, Jean-Luc Ponty doing this stuff. But then you go to Journey and then you come back. Was there any sort of, oh, is that the rock guy coming over here? Or were you always the jazz guy underneath it? Was there any sort of, were you, or were you aware of any sort of like, oh, people kind of looking sideways? Uh, no. Uh, well, okay, let me try to answer that. It's like I... I followed my opportunities. Yep. And I followed opportunities regardless of 
what they were labeled, whether they were jazz or rock right. or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, um, so I when when I got an opportunity to audition with Jean Luc Ponty, I actually wasn't that familiar with his music. He was on one of my favorite albums, and still one of my favorite albums, which is Visions of the Emerald Beyond. Oh, shit. Okay. The, the Mahavishnu yeah, Orchestra yeah. album that fe- that really features Nard and Michael Walden. Yeah. And that that album kind of was mind-blower for me. I mean, if you've ever listened to that, the mix of the drums, Ken Scott's mix, like the drums are in your face. And Nard <laughs> is like so killing on that. And like, he's a good friend of mine, too. Right. So of course, he knows it. That and that even was in in a way like a blueprint for for playing with Journey. Okay. It's like this massive kind of rock fusion funk sound that um, that could work in that kind of environment of Journey because you, you know you could hear Narda play with Jeff Beck. Yeah, you know, and 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 with this kind of big rock, any play would like. And I know it's an album that Alan doesn't, Alan Holdsworth didn't like, but uh, Vel- Velvet Darkness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Alfonso Johnson yep. and Alan Pasqua. It's kind of, you know, it's really kind of rough around the edges, but yeah. it's kind of wicked. Too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, anyway, I was, you know, playing, playing with Ponty. It was also uh, the bass player was Ralph Armstrong. Okay. from Mahavishnu. But I didn't, and I knew Jean-Luc had records out in the course, so when I went to the audition, I didn't know any of the music. But that didn't matter, because he had just made a new record called Imaginary Voyage. Okay. And he, you know, put the music in front of me. Said it so it was a reading started, audition. Yeah, and I sight-read it. Yes. No, no mistake. So, I, love I mean, it. <laughs> I, my sight-reading was up. Yeah. And it's not like that now. But Thanks it was, to the Kenton years. Yeah, or just big band. I was, yeah. like, working a lot around Boston, reading music all the time. Nice. You know, when you do that, your, your chops are up. It's one of the questions I get the most, like, hey, is it really important to read music? I, I say you have instant access to music that you would otherwise not have been able to access. That's, that's a, always my take I, on it. So what's yeah. your take on? Yeah, it's, it's that you are able to play music that you've never heard before the first time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, I mean, that's even like, boom. It's yeah. like, it's like, you don't need to learn this from a demo because I can look at the page and play it. Right. And, and, and Ponty, I think there was about seven or eight drummers at the audition and none of the other drummers could read wow. or really read. Okay. And he needed somebody that could learn music real quickly. Quickly, So I, I read the charts and, and he had me play in seven. He had me play in five. And the, the audition was Jeff Berlin and Ponty and me. It was just trio oh, with nice. bass. And, and then but a lot of duets with Jean-Luc. And, and that night he called me and said you know if you want we want once again no time between the audition and the game pack your bags you're coming to la (laughs) (laughs) so i did do that but then after you know we talked about this in the van for a minute it's like then after uh, about a year with ponty he wanted to make a change so i ended up moving to la from boston to like get into the music world and uh and i love this story because i've never heard my roommate the, the, the split in the road Right. My roommate, Chase Williams, was the road manager for Ponty. And he also worked for Freddie Hubbard. Michael Davenport was Jean-Luc Ponty's manager. He's right. always Freddie, he was also Freddie Hubbard's manager. So he got my foot in, in the door for an audition for Freddie Hubbard, which I did. And it was fantastic. And it was, 
exciting and Freddie liked my playing and asked me to be in the band. Right. Also that week, though, I had scheduled an audition with Ronnie Montrose and Ronnie Montrose lived uh, in the Bay Area. So I flew up to San Francisco. He was managed by Bill Graham and he was doing a project called Open Fire. So he had put out an album of instrumental music in roughly like a Jeff Beck kind of a thing. And he wanted a fusion drummer to play that music. And I auditioned for him and he said, you know, you got the gig if you want to do it. So that was like, all right. And, and so I had just played with Ponty, who had asked me, like, if you find this, there's a video on of Soundstage. The second gig I ever did with Ponty was a TV show called Soundstage. And um, and you can still find that on on YouTube. Um, he... And but in that video, I have this funky Gretsch kit like that doesn't match. None of the drums match, you <laughs> okay. know, because I had a little jazz kit and a sort of fusion kit, and I yeah. put them together. But he, in the, after the first couple of months, he said, "Can you buy a Billy Cobham kit?" <laughs> so he, it, meaning two bass drums, yeah. you know, three rack drums, floor drums. And you've never looked back. <laughs> yeah. So I I went and got my first sonar kit. I found you know I bought that in January '77. And I was having fun playing on the big, like we were playing theaters, yeah. lights, PA, you know, it was yeah, like, yeah. kind of like we were rocking it. And, and with Ronnie Montrose, it would have been, it would be that. Right. And with Freddie Hubbard, I, my sense was it'll be clubs, it'll be back to the 18 inch Gretsch bass drum, yeah. which now, now I do it in a minute. The, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but then I was like 23 year old, is like, no, I'm having too much fun with the double bass. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I said, I'm gonna go with Ronnie Montrose. And then we ended up being the uh, opening act for Journey for a three month tour with. Van Halen is the opening act, like a thirty-minute. One of three. Yeah. You were two of three, and then and then Journey and then was Journey. the first headline tour, and was Steve Perry's first tour with Journey, and that was nineteen seventy-eight. And it was the Infinity tour. The, so, so you talk about being in the room with Buddy Rich and Tony Williams, Elvin Jones, and yeah. getting that like this is what the drums sound from ten feet away and twenty feet away. What were the moments where you were in the room with a larger act? to help you when you got on those bigger stages with Journey? Or was Journey the beginning of just understanding those big, the really big mm. rooms, arenas and stadiums? And I, I had seen some rock bands early. Mm. I saw Led Zeppelin, and when they put out Led Zeppelin three, they played at Boston Garden, and I went and saw that. But that was like, and I saw Kiss, because okay. I knew it would be a spectacle. <laughs> you know, so. But... Um, you know, but I wasn't going to a lot of rock shows. Okay. I was mainly like in, into the jazz thing. But it was actually, in a way, playing with Ponty that I really learned how to get that big sound because he so demanded that. Okay. And he was coming right out of the, the Mahavishnu. And you thing. said you were already playing pretty big theaters by that point. Yeah, it was like 1500 C, okay. 2000. You know, and Ralph Armstrong was always in my ear about, you know, playing a big fat groove. Yeah. And, and uh, so I, I think, you know, I had the beginnings of it, but the finishing school of it was being in Journey. Okay. And so, and, and, and again, one of the things like a lot of people may find surprising, but one, so when I was offered to be in Journey, that came pretty quickly too. So that was August of 1978. So, you know, I've done that bunch of touring with Ronnie Montrose that year. 
but the guys in the band decided they wanted to make a change and and have me in the band and that sounded interesting to me. It right. wasn't like this big raise in pay because like the, right. the money, it wasn't really there. And they were about a million dollars in debt to Columbia because wow. they had three records that hadn't sold well. Then they had just recorded a fourth record that you know wasn't a big hit yet. It right. did. So it was assuming debt. It was making like $350 a week. I think I made 400 a week with Ronnie Montrose <laughs> and Ponty. Wow. You know, those are the, that's what's normal. So pay you took a pay cut. Took a little pay cut, but it, it seemed fascinating because I thought everyone in the band played great. I thought yeah. Steve Perry sounded amazing. And I hadn't really worked with pro singers. So gotcha. think about like, I'm a, you know, Berkeley guy playing and, and if, and if I play a gig at the Holiday Inn for a week, it's like the sax player might be the singer. Absolutely, then, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I had never really worked with a pro singer. So, so you know, Perry took me to school on that. And being, he was a drummer, and then a singing drummer, and then a front okay. man without, without drums. So he, you know, he would always have a lot of input. And, and I, you know, and I was just open to it, you yeah. know. And so he helped me develop a a kind of playing approach that gave him the support that he needed so he could be free and and being a musician with a lot of training and technique and chops and yeah. i could just adapt myself to it it wasn't a stretch it was relatively easy once i knew what the gig required you know i'm a quick study in figuring out what does the gig need sure, sure. and then i'll just i mean it. i see it's into i see that in in your own band like yeah. since it's been me and Manuel, it's different from what it was in the previous iterations or previous right. iterations. Yeah, and <clears throat> it strikes me that you had to adapt to that situation somewhat. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Like, but is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, like, yeah. Because it's not I, like you're just I'm Steve and I'm the band leader and you follow me. It feels very much more yeah uh, like a collective. That's what I said in the in, in a recent episode of the podcast. As I was sort of, I, I did an episode in the middle of the tour and said, "Hey, what's great about this gig is." It, it's not my band. It's not my gig. It's not my name on the marquee, but I still feel like almost a band leader in terms of the input that all three of us have yeah. as a collective. Very nice sideman situation to be in for me. Yeah. And the way that I run Vital Information is that it is like a collective. Um, I'm a good collaborator. Right. Yeah. 100%. And so I'm, I'm not a band leader that like here are the charts guys you know let's let's <laughs> let's play this yeah. you know it's like let's let's make music together yeah and that's always been the way i you know i'm not capable of writing 10 songs and and you know i but i can co-write i can collaborate sure. i can conceptualize sure, I can, sure. you know be a partner in that Which and is i need what a lot strong, of this album is in, which is what a lot of this album yeah. ended up being, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like that process. I like to collaborate and work together and then have the the, the people in the band feel part of it, yeah. the creative process. Which, and which I absolutely do, and obviously yeah, Manuel, I'm sure, does. Um, yeah. And we are, for everyone watching and listening here, we are on a, such an unbelievable time crunch. We could sit here and talk another two hours, but we do actually have to go play a show. And we've already done sound check. Steve gave a clinic for 90 minutes. We just had dinner. It's like been one of those days and it's the last day of the tour. But right. before we do end, the new album is Time Flies. Time it's flies. a double album, kind of thanks to involving it, George. It, did, it wasn't intended it to was be. It was not it. intended. Yeah. Even though you blocked six days in the studio, yeah. we ended the, up kind right. of cutting a second record in one afternoon. That's right. 
Yeah, we had 10 songs prepared. Right. And uh, we went in with the intention of recording all 10 songs. And in, in, just to go through it, like the first day I is like kind of this hugely extended drum tuning day because I hadn't changed my drum heads like... <laughs> 10 years yeah. <laughs> so so i you know we went into the studio my tech chris and i we just took all the heads off like tuned it up got it got it going and then manuel had a couple of pieces that he had programmed yeah, into a demos. computer yeah yeah so i just figured i'm going to play along with them because they're really good and i like yeah. that process i didn't wasn't going to do the whole record like that but right. i did i did so that day i got the drum sound and then i played two tracks to the computer so you could do your part to that and yeah so me and manuel show up day two and like a, t a fifth of the record is already done <laughs> and all we have to do is overdub our pass on two songs but then we did play everything. Oh, yeah, we did yeah, play everything. We, we played everything live after that. And yeah. so when I when I was at Berkeley, you know, 72, 73, 74, uh, George Garzon was was also at Berkeley. Right. And George still has this band called The Fringe, and mm -hmm. The Fringe was around then. Slightly different lineup. It was Richie Appleman, who was the head of the oh, bass yeah. department, <laughs> was on bass. And Bob Galati was the drummer. Yeah. And, and in those days, uh, I don't remember what gig it was, but Bob Galati went on some extended tour and, and Rich Appleman and George said, you know, you want to play in the fringe. So that was another one of those, like, that was a very cool experience because that was all about, in a way, transcending time and space and playing music that would just levitate yep. you. And there was a little bit of music, but yeah. mostly like improvising <laughs> yeah. and just kind of going for it. And and we'd we'd play gigs, and it would be like taking people on an acid trip or yeah. something. <laughs> so, and then I also worked with George in a group called Baird Hersey and the Year of the Ear. Okay, I also played with them in the Golden Chords, which was a wedding band. <laughs> <laughs> you and Garzone in a wedding, man. That's, so, yeah. That's an and we would just play, you know, like Girl Promethony. Oh, <laughs> it, it wasn't like the wedding bands of today, you know, when they know yeah. all these pop hits. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the old fashioned wedding, you know. So anyway, so so um, I guess what uh, the long story I'm getting to is uh, Baird Hersey, this band leader, called me to play on his record two years ago. It was uh, a new a new album. And then he called George to play on it. So it got me thinking about George. Also, I heard Peter's album with George, The Three Nights in L.A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of blew my Smoking, mind. Smoking, yeah, really. How great that record is. Yeah. So I just, okay, I need to get George's number again. <laughs> and so uh, we invited George to come and play on Inception. Right, just on one time. tune. Yeah. yeah. And then that led to... Well, what is this thing just, called love? Let's yeah. Well, that first then then it was like well let's. I had this idea. Let's play something that maybe we can put in front of Tempest Fuga. Oh yes. halftime funk. Yep. So we did that, and we just improvised like sure. three four minutes. Yeah, yeah. And it was like wow, that that's great. And then George wanted to do a duet, so with drums, and so we played two choruses of what is this thing called love, and mm -hmm. then we edited it onto the right. beginning of a take we had already done. Yep, yep. And then he had this idea, let's play One up, one Down, One Up. The Coltrane thing. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Because he had been working on it. I love right. that about him. I've like, been working on, on this for it. the last couple of months. <laughs> let's play it, yeah. So we played it, one take, and it was killing. And then he said this phrase, like, let's, let's just play like we're offering a prayer. Right. That, that was, remember when we did that kind of ballad thing? 
Yeah. That was right after he said that. That might be my favorite track on the because it was completely improvised and it yeah. sounds like Klaus Ogerman wrote it or something. I, I mean know. it sounds so kind of amazing. compositionally, yeah. you know. And then you started a lot of stuff with the sounds or with, with the, the bass line. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we just we got a double album out of it. Yeah, and so <laughs> by the time we were done like 3 hours later, I had, we still weren't sure. Yeah. But all this yeah. music was there. And then when I mixed the record, I mixed Time Flies, the 10 songs. Yeah. And then I said to Costa, the engineer, let's just mix what we did with George. And we were done. It was like, it's that's whole, another album. Whole other record. That's a whole yeah, album. Yeah. And then, but it made sense to package it with it. So right. it's, it's just a double CD that. Right. Which it. is coming out May 5th. Yeah. May 5th. So this podcast will be out shortly before that. And which also means this podcast will be out with about six weeks to buy tickets for the East Coast tour. We're here in Phoenix, Arizona, finishing the West Coast leg. We start out in Long Island at the Long Island Drum Center, June yep. 17th. And we finish up with three nights at Birdland in Manhattan, the, yeah. which finishes the second. I think it's uh, June July. 30th and July 1st and 2nd. 1st and 2nd, yeah. And in between is a bu- Rochester and Cleveland and yes, Blues Alley and a whole bunch of dates there. All so on your website? or all my, on everyone's website. Yeah, vitalinformation.com. And yannickdestarla.com. And I will also link them below in the description of this video if you're watching on YouTube. I'll also put them in the show notes of the podcast if you're just listening steve you're the man i hope this is part one of many all right yeah. Sounds good. thank yeah, you man i really right. appreciate it yeah. <laughs>